Seaman Fitz at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Underbuskera Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Duffy spotting for three. The place is going to run. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandoz in the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good, glorious Monday to the champions out there of ETSU football. What an outstanding championship game. What an unbelievable ending. And a game that had so many twists and turns in it, uh, especially with just how the game started. And ETSU looked dominant in the first half. Then in the second half, the third quarter specifically, Mercer just took over. And then the drama really cranked up a notch once Mercer got the de facto onside kick again. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize to Mike Gallagher. Clearly they worked on that as the most exciting play in history of sports that they were able to pull off two times in a row. And then Tyree Robinson jumps like 37 feet in the air, uh, picks off a pass, and then from there it just broke down into you just can't turn away and not watch what happened. And then the brilliance of uh, Randy Sanders uh, sending 12 men onto the field in order to call a timeout to watch the kicker clank one off the right upright and in to then have him try one more time and him pull it dead left and ETSU SOCON champions. Jay Sanders, Mike Gallagher, I'm in lovely Naples, Florida. Mike Gallagher is in, I would say lovely, but you're in the studio. So that's all I got for you there. It uh, does not smell lovely for the usual in here. So you may not be the problem. Well done. Uh, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe it's just the studio, the building. Dome is rather old. I'm not quite sure. But uh, it could smell like absolute death in here, and it still would not ruin my day because that was an unbelievable game. And you always reference Steve Forbes, Mike Young, Wofford, ETSU, 78-76 overtime in Wofford's perfect year where ETSU lost by two at Freedom Hall and high-level basketball game, right? Like, the Bucks have played so many close games, and all of the ones that I can remember, and I'm very am curious to hear what you think about this exact point, this is the best football game, looking from an impartial bystander perspective, at least trying to, that I can remember in terms of just the ups and downs, roller coaster, back and forth, wild swings of emotion, like... That game had it all, including an unbelievable, magnificent finish in favor of ETSU, which, of course, helps us. Yeah, I, you know, with everything involved, I mean, one, you don't get the conference champ, a true conference championship de facto game. Damn near ever. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's really impossible, you know, to get that. And, I mean, even when you do have a de facto championship game, sometimes it still lacks luster because – you know, one team's undefeated, another team may have two, three losses, right? So, I, I think t- to just what went into it, then to have Mercer and give them credit, they able to bus up about 300 students, and um, on 
top of the 250 that they were normally bringing. They pick a game every year where the athletic director kind of treats the whole entire staff to go to a game, and they had already, before the year started, picked that game. So just kind of fell backwards into that being the perfect timing. So Mercer brought fans. They were loud. It was energetic. It felt a little bit more like a championship game just for the simple reason we've seen this year where ETSU has had, you know, 95 98% of the crowd. And there was maybe, you know, 10% Mercer fans there. And they were able to make noise, especially in that third quarter, because Mercer was driving and scoring into um, sort of their student section. And I thought that added a level of, you know, sort of uh, – brevity to the game. I, I just really look at all the twists and turns. I, I'm going to go back and watch it probably today. Yesterday just traveled too much. I know I've already talked to the, the Robert Harper Matt Wilgen. They went back and watched it because, you know, Mike, when you do a game and things get lost, you're worried about other stuff. You're searching for stats or yeah. trying to see what all you're doing. So you don't sometimes get to take in all the things that happen. And it's funny, every time I go back and watch them, it's all, I'm always amazed at what, like, either – Little things I missed, or, or a couple times I've gone back, like man, how did I miss? Like that was a really big deal in that game or something, you know. And I feel like I probably didn't do a good job of that. So you always get to do that. But this one, I want to see just sort of the ebbs and flows at the end of the first half. There was the quirkiness, and we can get the all that in a minute, and, uh, kind of breaking down certain parts of the game. But the quirkiness there, you know, you went, you're still up, but something felt weird, you know, when just that happened. And then Mercer was able to get, you know, a couple of big plays, which seemed to be very uncharacteristic of, you know, ETSU giving up big plays, especially in the secondary. Hmm. And they were able to get that. But then it was that very same secondary that came up with two tremendous plays, one we mentioned with Tyree Robinson with that interception. And then Elijah Huzzy, who had been picked on all day, and he had his second interception, which, again, was equally as big. And then I thought – you know, going back to the first half, if ETSU would have sort of had that field goal on the board, how that would have changed things, because I don't think Mercer obviously would have went for two. Um, they would have just kicked the field goal, and you were looking at a tie game, and an ETSU could have tried to soft the game away and then kick a field goal. But then you're stuck with, you know, you know, you should always try to score. I know you would love to score with three seconds left, no time left, whatever would be the perfect – scenario, but I thought Coach dialed up a, a great play uh, at that specific time, and Tyler Rydell was unbelievable. I remember asking Matt Wilgham at the end of the first quarter, I was like, hey, Matt, um, do you think, because Tyler is six for seven, that he'll go 24 for 28? And he looked at me, very matter-of-factly, and said, no shot. And I want to give Matt credit, because he was right. He was better than that. He was 26 to 29, so I don't know how Matt knew that was going to happen, but that was uh, just an incredible display for a guy really the last couple of weeks that had struggled but I say this about Tyler he has a little bit of the flair for the dramatic and I've said this about a few guys like you know Jarvis Jones we, we did the basketball yes. blowout spectaculars if it was a big shot no matter how he was playing he would hit the big shot and Tyler right now this year if it's late in the game and you need throws made to win a game he's making throws to win games so 26 to 29 which back in the record book comes up percentage points from tying the completion percentage record by Mark Williams against Wofford in 1988. But Williams went 9 of 10. And it wasn't in a championship game. It wasn't with maybe not your season on the line, right, because we look and see where ETSU landed. And certainly 
a loss couldn't have possibly tumbled them out of the playoffs, right? You and me have both talked about it on the show. Like, it seemed like they were in coming into Saturday against Mercer, and Mercer, as it turned out, did need a win, and we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of this segment. But uh, all of the things that went into what Tyler was able to do, he was 15 of 38 the previous two weeks. And I thought it was so interesting, and this is why – Love your post-game chats and all the times we get to hear with Coach Sanders, you know, on the coaches show and just around the building in the hallways, the access we get because that's not, I don't think, typical of certainly high-level football, um, FBS football certainly, but ETSU being an elite or at least approaching elite FCS team, we still are able to chat with Coach Sanders a decent amount. Him breaking down the mechanical issues that. Tyler was having and the fact that I don't know why this surprised me I I don't because it's probably more common than we think but the fact that he just kind of rattled off hey you know this was going on I saw it on film had to correct it with him went out there corrected it I mean talk about a complete flip of the switch right like going from 15 of 38 which is like 40 percent to nearly 90 percent in the biggest game of your life absolutely absurd and the surprising part to me was okay so a coach Sanders can just see that right like he is a quarterback himself obviously has been around high level quarterbacks for a long time I don't know why it surprised me but just hearing him talk about the process that he went through of diagnosing that then going and fixing that and the fact that he was able to get it fixed in the span of a week right there was no bye week the struggles for Tyler had largely been after the bye week um, not that he was fantastic against Furman, but led that final drive and didn't have a bad day. Um, so it was a couple of weeks where he was having apparently those mechanical issues. And to be able to go and fix that in a week, the biggest week of your season, maybe the biggest week of football for ETSU in, what, 25 years? I mean, it was incredible to see how the struggles receded and one of the best performances, just looking at the stat that I gave you about completion percentage and considering the situation, I believe it's safe to say one of the best performances at quarterback in ETSU history. That blows my mind. Yeah, I, I mean, he was incredible. Weren't, and, again, it wasn't 21 of those throws were hitches, right? I mean, he's throwing the ball down the field. You had the touchdown pass early in the game, I think, that set the tone. You know, I thought he did a, a great job when they needed to move the chains of finding the right receiver and uh, completing that. I thought the throw to uh, Price down the center of the field where it was just over the linebacker and then the safety's crashing down, hits Price immediately, you know, a 35-yard dime, whatever. And then I thought, you know, even Randy Sanders, I know he hates taking timeouts, you know, till late in the game, but he had two situations where he took timeouts one in the third and one in the fourth, and it paid big dividends. The timeout on a third and four where the momentum late in the third quarter was clearly not going ETSU's way, and it was a big third down. And then he called a play that had been successful two other times, and then the third time all everybody jumped the short routes because that's what ETSU had been doing, and Rydell was so locked in, he knew everyone jumped the short route. All he had to do was throw long, and then you got that you know, 19, 20-yard completion instead of four, flips the field excuse me, and then ETSU able to go right in and score a touchdown. The second time, third and four again. And it's late, and, you know, you're speculating, okay, it's clearly two down territories, two minutes to go. What is he going to do? And originally he had called 
I think he said a, a pass, and then one of his assistants had mentioned a play, and it was like, you know, why, why not just give it to, to our best player, our All-American? And then Holmes hits a guy at the line or maybe a yard past the line of scrimmage and then just bulldozes him for the extra three yards for the first. And then you got him on their heels, and the very next play was a touchdown. I thought, too, I know coaches never want to burn timeouts until you absolutely have to. And, and the second timeout, just two minutes going to game, I think everyone's okay with that timeout, make sure you get the right one. But even that third down, you know, in the third quarter, if he doesn't call that timeout, they don't get the play, you don't execute, you're kicking the ball back to Mercer, who's already rattled off 18 points in a row. And then it was just such a huge deal for ETSU to get that first down and to keep that going. So there was there was some great calculations, I think, on both sides. Um, Mercer just abandoned the run, you know, which I was shocked because ETSU was just so dominant against it. And then, you know, most of the time you're going to take a lot of the one-on-one situations with, um, I think, ETSU. And then they didn't get home a lot. And I think Fred Payton – I don't want to say he played his best game because clearly he made a couple of throws that, you know, cost his team. But, I, I mean, he played one of his better games throwing the football and decision-making. Now, I think the first interception at the first half, he's just chunking one down there to see if they can get a big play. Um, I overshot his man. Huzzy's there to get the first interception. The second one, I think he was trying to throw the ball to a guy 12 yards down the field, and he underthrew it. And Robinson, again, just an incredible athlete, made a play. And in the third one, the receiver fell down, and it looked like the ball was still going to be behind the receiver, but I don't know if the receiver was stopping where he was supposed to stop or if he was going to settle or come back. I, I don't really – obviously, I don't know the route that he was trying to do, but the receiver fell right as he threw it, and then Elijah Huzzy was there perfectly to uh, pick up the pass and just, you know, ETSU winning another turnover battle. You know, as bad as Mercer had been in the red zone, they were really good in the red zone um, against ETSU on that day. And, I mean, if you just stumbled across the game, I think you hit on it. I mean, I don't know that there was a better game across all of college football, period, on Saturday. And it went exactly the opposite in terms of style of game, pace of game, and what units you would favor than I certainly thought. And I think that you were in the same boat. I, I think we both saw the – 48 and a half over under and when that number came out I immediately said how in the world are these teams going to score 48 and a half points combined in a championship game I'm seeing like 17 14 and it's not that both offenses aren't capable at times right ETSU has been capable all year long but in the style of game that I was expecting and it maybe started out that way in the very early going um you expect it to be kind of nip and tuck back and forth, especially with how Tyler Idell had been playing, more the let's not make the big mistake than, you know, let's open it up. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, Tyler ever quote-unquote, you know, opened it up. He d That Malik Murray throw early on, you know, that was really the first uh, big play of the game um, offensively, and, and that did kind of signal, you know, how the rest of the game was going to go. Uh, the Julian Price throw down field, sure. The touchdown late in the game. Still, though, I mean, there weren't any, uh, I'd say, on ETSU's side necessarily um, massively explosive plays outside of that first one to Malik Murray. It was just a tremendously, um, outside of that third quarter, that third quarter consistent effort. Um, you know, you got 
4.2 on the ground. ETSU averages uh, on their best days a lot more than that, right? What did they get uh, against Western Carolina? You know, obviously that was a record-setting day, but uh, it was through the roof. Um, now, Mercer did have a couple of more explosive plays in ETSU. That Devron Harper one, um, I believe it was Devron Harper. It might have been Ty James. I think it was Ty James down the sideline. The little hook route, right, and he shakes away from Huzzy, goes 66 yards. Um, but it was just, I mean, 73 combined points. It, it shocks me, you know. And you had on Mercer's side, I'm sure, an offense that felt like for 99% of the game, they played well enough to win. Peyton threw for the second yards, second most yards ever in a game in Mercer history, 375. Only Carter Peavy against Furman, I think it was in the spring or 2019, uh, threw for more, 406. Um, Ty James broke his own program record for receiving yards. He had 172. That was the record coming in, 224. I mean, 52 yards more. But you're right, those throws in the second half by Peyton and they were just bad throws. Like, it, it didn't seem like there was miscommunication. It didn't seem like there were um, necessarily things that ETSU did in those situations outside of a, you know, 45-inch vertical from Tyree Robinson that made those plays happen. I think you're right. I think that the interception with Robinson, that ball looked tremendously underthrown. Um even a bad throw at the receiver's feet, I think, would have cleared Robinson. It looked like it was going to come up a good three or four yards short of where the receiver was. Still a great play by Tyree, no doubt. Um, but then, and this is the one that really was odd to me. It's the one you brought up about Elijah. And Parker Robles slips out of his break. And slips happen, especially on that turf, right? Like, it gets sunny, slippery. Well, it, did, it did all day for Mercer. They struggled to stay. No here. doubt. Like, it, especially when it's sunny. You know, it gets slippery. He slips out of his break. And it looked like Peyton was throwing to maybe a curl route or like a fake out and then settle, you know, kind of in one spot. He threw it behind where he slipped. And so maybe it was, a, you know, a zag route, you know, out and then in. I didn't really understand it looking back at the replay. And you'll watch it here in you know, a couple hours here as well. And I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it, you know, off air as we're talking before the basketball game tonight at, 5 o'clock on the Buccaneer Sports Network is ETSU men's basketball with the Naples Invitational. Outside of those couple of plays, gosh, Fred Payton, you're right. One of his best games. He did have a tremendous second half against Wofford. Threw for like 335 and three touchdowns that day. A lot of that in the second half. But, you know, Fred Davis has had his struggles recently. Uh, I believe it was the Sanford game where he set the record. And then the week after, I think that was Western Carolina. And Let's keep in mind, those are the two worst-run defenses in the league. So not surprising to see him rack up 404 yards those two weeks. But he has, I believe, outside of those two weeks this season, like 420, and the yards per carry is roughly half. So we were talking a bit about that on the ESPN Plus side. Just unless it's a putrid, awful run defense like Sanford and Western Carolina are, Fred Davis has not been up to the level of a Quay, of a Jacob. Um even if in a limb forward. So, yeah, it was very confusing to see this game go the way it did. I think we both thought it would be close, but 73 combined points uh, was not what I was envisioning. No, no doubt. And then, honestly, if you would have just – and I want to go back to explosive plays for a second because if you would have told me, you know, ETSU would have eight explosive plays and Mercer would have – what was that, 19? No, 14. 14 explosive plays. 
I probably would have thought, boy, it's going to be a long day for ETSU because Mercer does tend to hit big plays, but I would have thought they hit big plays and then because they were having some success elsewhere. And it was the opposite. Again, this was like a opposite world day for a lot of things. Like they were not having success on the ground. They weren't having success doing a bunch of normal stuff that they do. And they were just getting big plays. I mean, not just the 66-yard pass play, but you're looking at 23, 20, 26, 31, 24, the 48-yard touchdown, 19, 18, 15. And you mentioned the 66-yarder all in the air. I forgot about the 48. Yeah, the broken tackle. Yep. <laughs> and, and, you know, 66-yarder was against Huzzy, the 48-yarder against Huzzy. So to see Huzzy make that play and get a little bit of redemption at the end, bad throw or not, just, you know, just kind of shows where this team is at. And just where they can go. And I was amazed again when ETSU sort of had his back against the wall. The offense woke up. And I remember texting um, Big Country, who's been, uh, you know, on the podcast before. He's sitting in Section W with the Mercer section. And he was like, ooh, I don't think this is looking great. Then uh, super happy Mike White has already wrote at least seven times the Bucks have just lost this. And <laughs> Sort of, sort of what he does. I think he's. He, I think he does the. If I keep sending this, they're going to prove me wrong, and then Jay will yell at me. I think that's what he keeps sending me messages for. So, and I sent him the stat, and I was like, "Hey, just just to let you know, ETSU going into the fourth quarter was outscoring opponents ninety six to thirty nine." And I was like, "We got them right where we want them." And then they both kind of laughed, and then you know they scored. ETSU scored, and you're going, "Okay, all right, maybe he's got some." And then the onside kick happened. <laughs> And they were like, oh, this is just it's just not going to happen. And then the very next players and then the ebb and flow of that. Well, I think for all Buck fans, I, th- I think that was a microcosm of all Buck fans' thoughts as that was going on in just that sort of three-play sequence, right? You have the, the, the long touchdown, and you're going, gosh, how bad is that? We couldn't make a tackle. Then the kick off the up back. And then you immediately get the interception where, where I laugh because Mike – because of that onside kick, ETSU gained like 30 yards of field position that, that they wouldn't have had to start with. Because of the interception. Because yeah. of the interception where it happened at yep. like the 35. If you just line. kick it away, they're probably getting at the 25 or 30. Instead, you get it at the 35 and plus territory. I totally thought that same thing, too. It was, And it worked at first, obviously, right? Like another tremendous call and the fact that he did it back-to-back weeks and Drew Cronick flat lied to me uh, on air and said, oh, you know, that's, that's not how he drew it up. Like it, I totally get it. I actually chuckled, and you saw how fired up I was in the box after that happened. We pointed at each other and were just like, I cannot believe this is happening. He said that it wasn't intentional, and, of course, I tried to get everybody into their word, but it was some gamesmanship there, and i got to give Coach Cronick credit because brilliant, right, to pull it out back-to-back weeks and have it work both weeks. Um, the field position point is a great one, and we talked about the fourth quarter on the podcast on Thursday and this is why I was not in the same boat as you were. ETSU has them right where they want them, 95-39, because the only team better in the league in the fourth quarter was Mercer, 85-27. to They had given up 27 fourth-quarter points all year, and they gave up 17 to the Bucks. So you send that text, and I don't know how much ingest it was or in reality you know, how serious you were about it, but it, it proved to be the exact right thing to send and the exact right message and something that came to fruition, right? Like, I saw 27 fourth-quarter points, and I I thought there was no way if Mercer scored again. You know, going into the – they had, what, 18 in the third? And so it was, what, 28 to 21. I thought if they scored again, 
it was over. Because that would mean the Bucks would have to score double digits against Mercer in the fourth. And 27 the entire year. Um, it was unbelievable in that second half how both teams seemed to have no conscience. And credit to both coaches. And this is something that I heard in terms of similarities from both of them. Don't obviously talk to Coach Cronk as much as we do to Randy, but the messaging is so, so similar from both of those men to their teams. And it's no surprise then that they've had the level of success that they have. Same messaging, same winning percentage at your school, right? Uh, Same messaging, same result this season going into last week. You meet in the SoCon title game. You both have just one loss. As it turns out, uh, Mercer on the bubble, uh, narrowly, let's just put it that way, narrowly left out of the FCS postseason. Um, but the messaging, you know, and I'll just use a couple of phrases from Coach Sanders, but in other words, Drew Chronic essentially reflected this same thing. So what now what, right? Opportunity number blank. Control what you can control. Uh, play the next play. So on and so forth. And that was shown in that second half that both of those teams, I mean, they are tuned into their head coaches and they listened, and they it played out on the field. Because when one play went against you, it didn't seem to matter. Blank slate, next play, let's go. I thought something huge in the game was first down and how teams were very good on first down for a lot of the game. But if they were unsuccessful on first down, it was like that was it for the drive. Like it was quite incredible. So 35 first down plays for Mercer. 231 yards, averaging 6.6 yards. They had 19 carries, 77 yards, 9 for 16 passing, 154 yards. They also got ETSU to commit four penalties on first down for 51 yards. So you add that into it. They made 11 first downs on on first down play, so 10 or more yards, right, on first down. But here was the big one. All three of their turnovers come, to, come on first down. And so, again, I know into the half you're just trying to force an issue there, but ETSU 32 first down plays, 232 yards, average 7.3 yards, 18 carries for 94 yards, that's 5.2 yards a carry, 12 of 14 for 138 yards, uh, just one offensive penalty, and then uh, uh, seven first downs made, zero turnovers, and three touchdowns on first down, but it was amazing because teams weren't, ETSU got a little better. On third down, they finished 50%, 6 of 12. Mercer was 0 for their first three of the first half and then finished 3 of 8. Um, so they got a little better in the second half. Three Was that 3 of 5? So uh, 60% there. But it really seemed like first down had to make something happen because if the defenses sort of shut down, got helped out, and could put whatever it was, then second down they were able to sort of put the clamps down. And then third down, especially – in the first half was a little tough to come by. ETSU was a little more successful in the first half on third down. Obviously, Mercer didn't convert one. But I thought it was interesting just how efficient both teams were um, in the first down and was able just to hit big play after big play. And we've seen a couple teams really hurt ETSU with the RPO with, you know, the fake handoff running back and kind of throw that slant. I mean, Furman uh, kind of diced up ETSU with that until – Tyra Robinson just said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and sell out for this. And he almost picked it off, and then that kind of took that away. And Robinson, how about that almost interception in the end zone as well? It was right after the Mike Price um, uh, personal foul where they reviewed it for targeting, decided it was not targeting, he stayed in the game, and then a couple plays later, 
Ty Robinson had a ball kind of in his hands. It was thrown behind the receiver, and I know it kind of got on Tyree quickly, and he wasn't expecting it, but it was one of those where it's like, man, if he just makes that catch, then I thought at that point in time in the game that, you know, in the third quarter, that, that maybe that was a sign it was going to be the ball game and go ETSU's way, but obviously it did not, and then uh, Mercer was able to score. But, you know, Quay Holmes, all-time leading rusher in ETSU history, all-time single-season um, rusher history. Will Huzzy did Will Huzzy things. Is now is the top ten in receptions, top ten in yards. I think he's now top ten single-season. So just just a lot going on uh, there uh, in the game altogether. And then Tyler Keltner ties Jerry Chapman for second all-time field goals. Man. So a lot of history, a lot of things. The most important history, Mike, it's the first true outright Southern Conference championship for ETSU. It's the third outright championship in the history of the school and the third time they've got ten wins and the first time they've got a national seed and will sit this weekend and play the waiting game between Davidson and Kennesaw State. Yeah, tie their most victories of all time. They've never won more than ten games in a season and against either Davidson or Kennesaw State will have that chance. A couple more things on that Saturday game, if you don't mind. Malik Murray it seems like just keeps showing up in those big moments, right? Vanderbilt with the touchdown, Furman with nine seconds on the clock to win the game. And Coach Sanders talked about it post game. He thought that Malik was going to have a big game. And it was his biggest game, maybe of his career, um, certainly in his time at ETSU. Five catches, 73 yards, the two touchdowns. And they were arguably the two most important touchdowns, the first and uh, the last, right? Like, I'm not sure it gets much more important than that. Like, ETSU has been tremendous at opening games and closing games. First quarter and fourth quarter have been their strength. And when they need someone to run a route, get open, give a window to throw into, uh, just win a battle, right? And there are lots of battles out there on Saturday. It has been Malik Murray. A couple other guys that you didn't mention, lesser milestones certainly, but when Jacob Saylor returned that first kick, that put him and Quay over 10,000 all-purpose yards combined. Absolutely absurd. Quay is over 6,000 all-purpose yards in his career, top five in Southern Conference history. Nate Adkins uh, tied his career high for catches in a season. He's got 25 now. Um, you mentioned Keltner. Uh, Tyler Idell has his best game and nearly breaks the ETSU completion percentage record. Um, I would mark this as a better game than the one against Sanford personally just because of the stakes. Um, more passing yards. Uh, in the Sanford game, 291 and three scores, but to complete it almost 90%, uh, 265 and three touchdowns, uh, absolutely incredible. And just the resilience of Elijah Huzzy. Speaking of that, you know, so what, now what mentality, I mean, as up and down of an individual performance as you may ever see, like every time someone was getting beat in the secondary, it was Elijah Huzzy. And then to come back and have two interceptions, and obviously the one before the half didn't turn into points. I, the conversation would be interesting in an alternate universe where ETSU, say, loses in overtime, like, you know, Fulser hits that kick, and let's say Mercer wins, um, you know, on whatever, in whatever scenario in overtime. Uh, I thought it was interesting to not have Tyler Keltner kick it from 49, I think it would have been, right before the half. Um, seemingly well within his range on that field in the past. He's made 50-plus. Uh, obviously nothing you would talk with Coach Sanders about after simply because of the way the game played out, but um, that was certainly interesting. Um, so that one didn't turn into points, but if 
Mercer goes and punches that ball in on the drive that Huzzy has the other interception, I mean, we could be having a tremendously different conversation. There, there's no question about it. Um, so just for him to be involved seemingly in every big play, right, um, and they were just running the same things, Mercer, over and over in that passing game. They found the little curl route at five, six yards that was wide open the whole day. They found the those posts over the middle, um, just working it again and again and again. And even when Billy Taylor changed up defenses, tried to go cover two on the post the one time where I think it was Jay Harrison was like just so close to undercutting it, missed his hand by it must have been six inches, another completion for Ty James. Uh, they just continued – to fight and work at it, and I think it's a shame they're not in the Southern or the FCS postseason. I think it's a shame that they were left out with those six FCS wins. I understand it. I mean, there was another FCS team that made it with six wins, and they have five losses. Um, and if we want to transition to a little bit of this talk, since things shook out the way that they did, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, but the selection show held some very interesting things yesterday. So I did not get to see the selection show. So I know they had some problems with the selection show, so I did not get to see if they explained who was in and who was out. So, um, I, and ESPN three or Hoover Plus or U or whatever it was doesn't archive same day. So I'm hoping they'll have it so I can watch it today too. We were just in a plane when all that. So when I landed, when uh, before we took off at 12:15, you know, I was hoping we were the seed, and we didn't get any. Uh, response until we got over 10,000 feet in the air, and then they cut on the Wi-Fi, and Kevin was able to at least get on Twitter. We couldn't stream anything. Get on Twitter and find a, a bracket. So we kind of were looking between me and him, looking at the bracket and trying to figure out, you know, who got left out and all. But I'm not sure. Obviously, you and I was the the six and five team you're referring to that got in. Yes. I know because of their top 25 wins in. It was strength of schedule too. Computer right. numbers, yes. Yes, they, they were doing it, and then, you know, and I think Mercer got hurt but just not playing the 11th game. And I'm sure when they made the decision after playing all the games in the, the fall, the spring, and then there just adding up all the numbers on the games, eventually they went with health and safety, and they made that decision before the season. So it's not like you can kind of come up and, and change on, on what they did. But I, did they say, like, Mercer was first team out, or did they have any of those type things they were so talking about? So I don't know if – I can say this or not, and I didn't really listen to the entire selection show, honestly. Um, once ETSU was announced and saw the rest of the bracket, I mean, we were all gathered in a room, didn't really listen to a lot of it. So if, if I'm revealing confidential information, you know, whatever it's done, Mercer was the first team out. And I think that that is extremely painful for a team that looked like, to me on Saturday, a playoff team. Again, the uh, mistakes here and there get that – quarterback play has been inconsistent a lot of the year but Drew Chronic said Fred Payton has been a guy that has played well throughout the season and definitely played better at times than others but he's played good more than he's played bad and we saw that in a big spot uh, on Saturday and it looked to me like a team that belonged in the FCS postseason but I have shown my SoCon bias on the show before and it has certainly not helped me in the last uh, week or so as we saw Saturday a couple of teams certainly one team that I vehemently defended in Chattanooga lose a horrible horrible game to the Citadel and then VMI lose as well I, I think and this is what I wonder Jay and your take on this will be interesting I think as well if VMI or Chattanooga or both win 
I wonder what the outcome is knowing that Mercer was the first team out. Is a victory from one of those or both of those, A, does it slide them above Mercer and all the way into the FCS postseason? If it doesn't and Mercer's still ahead, does the conference get more respect because of those victories and just push Mercer up that fraction of an inch they needed to be to be included in the 2014 playoff? It's really tough. I, I think they would. I think one of the teams would have jumped them. I think a seven-win SoCon team, whether that was Chattanooga or VMI, and I still think VMI probably would have gotten in because they would have beaten both those teams. And I think the committee at some point looks at, well, we got three teams in the SoCon want to get in, but one team's beaten both. And I really think that that's how they would look at. Again, I. I don't have the inside info on exactly that's how that would work, but to me, I get the feeling that's that's how that would have gone, and, and just going off kind of traditionally. Now, again, all the committees are different, and yes, we're not privy to everything that they um, you know, have or don't have and all that good fun stuff, but I, I just feel like if Chattanooga or VMI would have won, they would have been in. If they both would have won, uh, they one of them would have got in, and you know, I, I don't know from there. We believe Chattanooga is the better team. Yes. Um, I, I don't think there's a question there. But when I don't know anything though, clearly about Chattanooga after they <laughs> lost to the Citadel. Well, and and what was the what was the saying? Make sure uh, Chattanooga doesn't beat you twice. Well, guess what? Mercer beat Chattanooga twice, and that was a clear. You know, they felt like maybe their the season, the championship was gone. I, I don't know. It was certainly disappointing. I think for that result and. Ecstatic for the Citadel to have such a bad year and to end it with such a big win and a road win. I think that was an incredible <coughs> pickup for uh, the Citadel. And, and you know, who knows what, what's going to happen with Brent Thompson here um, at the end of the season, but certainly. That might have saved yeah. him. I, I, it really you know, could have. Uh, honestly, I mean, that was, that was a, I thought, a pretty, a pretty big deal for them to pick up the win. And to do that, but I think, you know, what's disappointing to me, Mike, is two years in a row, and I know the spring was what it was, and there wasn't 24 teams in, but the last team left out was ETSU, Southern Conference team. This year, the last team left out, Mercer, Southern Conference team. So, league has to do something to to get some extra wins and to get into the playoffs, and what would help the league is if they don't pull for ETSU to win games, and they're just kidding themselves because it just costs them opportunities next year. If ETSU is at least able to hold serve in their one home game and go to North Dakota State and roll the dice, right, and see what happens. And if nothing else, I, I was ar uh, not arguing, but I was talking um, with Keith Brake about this. and was like, hey, if ETSU and North Dakota State do meet and they do play a classic, well, we know they play in 24 and 26. They always try to get a national televised kickoff game going. You know, wouldn't wouldn't we try to push the ADs to say, hey, look, I know instead of playing the second week of September, what if we open up the year the week early? They always do an FCS game. It's on ABC. You try to get, you know, we saw Sanford and Jacksonville State there a few years ago. Why not try to play early with a cross-sectional, you know, hope it would be a top 25, top 15, top 10, whatever, game and get national exposure for that game. And so having ETSU, and what would really help that is if ETSU obviously went up there and won, or at least it is a field goal type game, right? But the perception of the Southern Conference 
they've got to start winning playoff games because ultimately that's what it's going to that's what's going to help the league get more teams in when they see those teams winning playoff games then you start to see you know okay here we go when the league just beats up on each other rather you know the sell and we talked about this last week the salesmanship for each league if your league is beating up each other it's because of how great it is in parity if it's the other league it's because you know they stink well when the Missouri Valley and Big Sky are holding all the cards right now and you're just beating up all on each other, you know, then there's nothing. But I would say this, too. Do a deep dive on non-conference wins of the Big Sky versus SOCON teams and non-conference wins. And then each the Southern Conference clearly wins that battle, right? But because they've got teams that have got seven and eight wins, then they get in. But they're they're if we had equal – teams that had seven wins they got seven wins i would be beating on that horse if i was the committee and say well look at all the southern conference non-conference wins. forget about strength schedule because that's all fooey because the top 25 plays into that there's some other things it's not it, it, there is some win percentage things and home and away and all that go into it but they still take the top 25 and top 25 is you know the popularity contest you know we talked about that on many levels i don't think anybody's confused on how that works which is why not every team in the top 25 gets in the tournament every year, and the committee is smart enough to put the better teams in. But I, it's just disappointing that VMI and Chat limped to the finish line the last two weeks. It's disappointing that Mercer wasn't able to, to be the last team in because they didn't have an extra game on the schedule. And honestly, just disappointing that um, it's one SOCON team. I mean, I'm excited it's a national seed. That will help elevate, but just disappointed – that we don't get a chance to get, you know, a, a Mercer-Kennesaw or Mercer-Davidson or any of those type matchups. But, but the league didn't deserve it. I mean, as things shook Agreed. out. As, Agreed. as the league shook out this weekend, I mean, there's absolutely no way that they had any legs left to stand on. Insane. Multiple bids were deserved. And no one hated that more than me, right, because I've been driving the SoCon bandwagon, especially over the last week, but really over the last three or four on this show saying forget two teams let's get three or four right and i think there was a scenario in which that could have happened had things gone differently this past week and especially knowing now that mercer was the first team out and again that's uh, whether i've said information people already know or information that people didn't know at all uh, regardless my understanding is that they were the first team out knowing that if they win obviously they've got the auto bid then etsu is in and then if chattanooga wins knowing that chattanooga at least in the minds, I believe, of those that have watched the Southern Conference closely and even the minds of some of those that have gotten those little cut-ups of the games and watched, you know, 15, 20-minute compressed games the entire year and seen both of those teams side-by-side, side, I think a lot would agree that Chattanooga is the better team despite a one-in-a-million win by Mercer against Chat two weeks ago. Uh, is Chat then? And then there's three teams, and all of a sudden – you're like, wow, the SoCon's back. You know, th things didn't work the way the SoCon needed them to. And ultimately, when the chips were down, the teams that were either would have beens or were not going to bees, to paraphrase, uh, clearly showed that they were not worthy. And that is extremely, extremely disappointing. And I think it's a couple of years in a row now where Chattanooga would say, wow, what a terrible end to our seasons right like I mean their first one on their own volition and from the understanding of pretty much I think everyone around the league that was because 
they wanted to make sure that they were healthy and ready for this year. Am I assuming too much there, or do you agree? No, no, I agree. And so look, uh, and so you look now, if that was the case, what a waste. Because last year, in the spring, they were a team that could have gone on and won the Southern Conference Championship, and instead of either winning one of them or winning both of them, you come out with nothing, not even an FCS playoff berth this time around after ending your season early last year. Um, what a devastating turn of events for the league. And while you bring up Keith Brake, my apologies to Keith Brake. I think that he cannot step out of his elitist NDSU Missouri Valley bubble, and that frustrates me. But he is absolutely right, and I am absolutely wrong. Uh, he saw through the Southern Conference last week. I was going to beat the drum until the last possible moment. And then when the cards were on the table, um, Missouri Valley got a ton. Big Sky got a ton. SoCon got one. And I ripped him to shreds last week for it. Um, still a great guy. Keith, you're awesome, you know, in terms of general stuff. But as much as I may disagree with your takes, you're 100% right. I'm 100% wrong. Uh, also, my apologies to Robert Harbour and Don Hellman because I may not like their takes about the Big Sky or the Missouri Valley either, as I clearly interjected on the pregame show on Saturday. They were right, and I was wrong again. I mean, it was unbelievable to see how things worked out. When I saw that VMI score, I wasn't surprised VMI lost, but the way they lost, I mean, four touchdowns, and then just unconscionable to think that a 23-and-a-half-point underdog in the Citadel goes and beats Chattanooga on their own field. I, I just, I mean, two weeks ago, you had to almost as a buck pen swallow your pride and say, you know, you need Chattanooga and VMI to win out. To me, that was the easiest path two weeks ago to get three teams in because ETSU, Chattanooga, and VMI would have been in. Then when Mercer won, you're thinking, okay, now unfortunately the easiest path to get three teams in is Mercer has to beat ETSU. ETSU's in. Chattanooga wins. Now you can get maybe three teams in. Or if VMI won, you've got four teams. Pick three. And obviously ETSU and Mercer is in, so, so pick another one. And then it just kept the worst case of worst case kept happening and now – you know, for ETSU, you get a hold of a trophy by yourself, and that is great, and it can never be taken away from you. You don't have to have three different teams wearing the same ring the same year claiming a championship, right? It is yours, and the national seed, just everything. It's hard. Just as a Southern Conference fan, and you want them to get the recognition and to get back to where three and four teams were, were getting into the mix, it's certainly got to – change and get better. I mean, VMI was able to pick up a couple of, you know, FCS non-conference wins. And so, you know, they didn't play a lower division team, so they were trying to up their resume with FCS wins to get in the playoffs and go back-to-back years going to the playoffs and had a chance there. Mercer will be back to an 11-game schedule next year. I've not checked who all they play, but they'll, they'll do that as well. Chattanooga traditionally does not play a Division Two game. They play an extra extra FCS game. So two teams will play extra FCS games and have a chance to get extra FCS wins to try to get them into the playoffs. And then can ETSU, Mercer, continue to do what they're doing um, because they traditionally play one non-D1 team or that won't count in the standings. And, of course, ETSU had the luxury of knocking off an SEC team and both Mercer and ETSU have SEC teams lined up next year. So – that's asking a lot, I think, to win FBS all the time. But the league has set up at least some teams to try to do that. And I think if you can get to a situation where if Chattanooga can win both their non-conference games and if um, 
BMI can do what they did again when they're both non-conference games. That gives them already a couple wins going into league play. And then, honestly, if they just go five and three, you know, I think that's enough to get teams in right now. Um, this was a bad bubble year where I think, you know, teams in the Southern Conference could have made a better claim and could have guaranteed themselves in compared to what it was. And, you know, usually don't get some HBCU teams in, but Florida A&M just went bonkers the last half of the year on an eight-game win streak, and they've got nine wins, so, so they're in this year. So there's some interesting ties. I know for Buck fans, there's, there's always been this nice little rivalry with, with Kennesaw State because we started the program same time. We kicked off against each other. We're one and one, right? Now you get the rubber match. You know, you get the, the 2015, 2016 games. Now you turn around and uh, got an opportunity in 2021 on the big stage if Kennesaw State holds off Davidson. Those two teams are two of, two of the top five, I think, rushing teams in America. I want to say Davidson's actually number one. I think they're averaging 343 yards a game on the ground. So it could be a two-and-a-half-hour game between Davidson and Kennesaw State. And I know the brackets and stuff, it's been debunked, but the bracket was wrong. We're not going to play Friday at two. I know you <laughs> Fielded questions to also. In front of a whopping 1,700 at William B. Green Jr. Stadium, a matinee affair in the round of 16. And 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 if we win, we would not be at North Dakota as much as we would rather be at North Dakota. We <laughs> will be, be nice. at North Dakota. So how many fail downs could you get out of that thing? How many fail downs could you get every time um, they probably said North Dakota instead of North Dakota State or vice versa or South Dakota, South Dakota State, vice versa? I'm sure they dropped in Eastern Tennessee at some point in time. I mean, I'm just wondering how many – flaws did they have uh, on that show because they clearly had time to actually make a bracket and put times and teams and all, just in, just an embarrassment again that the FCS has to deal with for the the lack of caring from the network that holds all the rights to it, which is also just uh, very concerning and baffling amongst others. Well, I can tell you bottom line, uh, unbelievable game. It was such a fun Saturday and when it comes to December 4th, um, I'm personally rooting for Kennesaw State this weekend because that would be so much fun at our place and just the absurd, ridiculous things that get said in the Owls camp and in the Big South about football there and oh, just the chance to get them here in a big game and... I don't think there's anything to prove for the SoCon or for ETSU personally, but we see them every week. I get nationally the perception is different. Um, Kennesaw State is very full frontal about their belief that they are the greatest thing in the world and that no team, especially ETSU, can hold up to them. And it is so obnoxious. I mean, so, so obnoxious. Um, everything down to the radio guy, right? Like their fan base, their radio guy, their administration, the whole thing. And uh, it's, it's bad. Um, so I hope that what is expected to happen happens. So we can have a major clash of a couple of, I think, fan bases that don't like each other and schools that early on in football's return for ETSU traded just major haymakers. Well, I, I, that's what everyone wants. And, and, and the truth is ETSU just gets sits and waits. So is Kennesaw going to be so focused on that game that they don't pay attention to Davidson? Or will they just take care of business and get things ramped up? I think it'll be electric. ETSU and Kennesaw's always had kind of weird, bad blood. I mean, they've, they've had several rejections in basketball. 
Well, maybe I can get Deleon Snead or Ben Rode on and talk about some of those. Uh, but we had, you know, a couple games with ejections and uh, sometimes the pushing and shoving got a little more. Sometimes there were some forearms thrown. Really wasn't like true haymakers, but there was some legitimate uh, ejections and, and uh, benches, you know, kind of malingering around. You know, like a baseball one, Mike? You're one of those where, like, you know, you kind of all get together in the pushing and shoving, but – so we've had that. Then you had, you know, Kennesaw State just kind of thrashing ETSU in the first one, and then the lack of respect for the second game, and then ETSU able to pick up the win there, and just to hear some of their comments after losing that game where it wasn't a lot of, like, you know, you know, ETSU did a good job of coming back and playing well. It was like, well, you know, just because last year our guys just thought we should be able to win, and then I was like, oh, come on, man. You just got hammered. But – so that, there's that. Then there's the game day stuff. There's all so, it will be fun. Our, the fan base, I think, would thoroughly enjoy that. I think for the league, and I realize, you know, nothing to prove ETSU national seed, but I think to shut the rest of America up that's still out there that believe ETSU didn't deserve a seed, I think certainly, you know, not losing to whoever they play in the first round, going to North Dakota State. In the next round, assuming that they win, assuming ETSU wins, and it put it on a good showing there, I think kind of shuts everyone up. And because ETSU is going to return a lot of people, then I would assume they're going to start fairly high ranked in the preseason next year. And then you know once you start high ranked, Mike, it's hard to get out of there if you just keep winning. So it will be an interesting uh, sort of season because the Bucks won't play that SEC game until the last week of the year, the week before um, – the Saturday before the, the uh, seeding come out. So you'll kind of know, I think, ETSU's fate on where they're going to be going into that game, and that, and that changes things, I think, dramatically too. Because if you get, say, you're sitting there on eight or nine wins, and then you're going to Mississippi State, well, now you know you you may be locked into a seed. Well, then if you were to accidentally beat an SEC school for the second straight time, right, now you're talking about really uh, changing how the, the seeding and percentages go. But the best thing about this team right now, besides you get a bye, you get a week to heal up and kind of sit and wait while a couple teams get to play each other, is, I mean, you just know going into this game that you're going to do something that no other school has been able to do in ETSU history. You've got a chance to set the win total. I mean, you got a chance to do a lot. You could, again, break an attendance record on December 4th, which seems Four to be – Four times in six games. It's pretty incredible. Which tends to be, you know, just the norm. And to cap it all off with that SEC win, when you go back and look at this year, you know, it's always hard to compare eras. You know, there wasn't the playoffs in 69. They play a bowl game. Certainly, when you destroy an NFL Hall of Fame quarterback, that's going to bring a lot of notoriety. Um, to that as well. The 38, don't know a lot about it besides obviously the team. 96 was able to, to win at a win against Villanova and then go on the road and, and lost to a team that was in the national championship game. It was Montana and Marshall that year for the national title. So it was a situation where ETSU really got boat raced in that second game in the snow and ice up there. So ETSU, if they can get to play, North Dakota State up there and could do something, you know, and I'm not talking about make it interesting, but walk out of there with a win. And for all the Buck fans, 
versus the big sky versus everything else, then I don't know, you know, what kind of uh, double bird emoji you can put out there, but that's sort of what I feel like uh, Buck Nation and, and the Southern Conference should do. Fun to think about. I just want the SoCon to put the Big South in their place where they belong, well below the SoCon in every other sport as they are in football outside of one team. And that one team, beating that one team, would be a pretty decisive dagger into the Sorry, you can't even have a seat in the conversation anymore. You can't even pull up a chair to the table. Um, it, this is it. And I think that SoCon fans think that about the Big South in general, but there is in football one team that has been able to maintain relevance and prevalence on the FCS scene. And, and if that team comes in here, it would be so fun to shut them down. And they've knocked off Southern Conference teams in the playoffs. Yep. So, you know, for them – you get the chip on Kennesaw State's shoulder is you can make fun of our conference, but when we get in the playoffs, we generally sure. beat your Southern and that's Conference legit. Teams. And that's legit. That's totally a legit argument, and I totally get where they're coming from. It's the same place I'm coming from when we talk about the Missouri Valley and the Big Sky. And the chip on – it's a great way to put it, the chip on their shoulder. And they are so obnoxious about it that it makes me have a chip on my shoulder about the chip that they have on their shoulder. And you can see how this kind of <laughs> snowballs downhill. Every, everyone's just chippy that's at right. this point in time. Is that what you're telling me? It is me? getting chippy, Jay Sandoz, and that's 12 days before game day. Okay. Well, I cannot wait for that. You want to talk a little hoops? Let's do it. All right. We'll step out for a timeout. We'll come back. We'll talk about this Naples Invitational, ETSU, and seven others. After this timeout, Sandoz sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. is a strong mid-major field, sir. That it is. And it's going to start with uh, a lot of people and are going to know, I think, Murray State. I think a lot of it mainly because of the John Morant a few years ago. But this was a team that was uh, battling with Belmont for who was going to win the, the conference tournament. He was going to get the at-large in NCAA tournament. It was the year that the OVC got two in, and North Carolina Greensboro was the 69th team, I guess, right? 68 now, so 69th team. They were the number one seed in the NIT because they were the first team left out. And it starts with their coach, Matt McMahon. And if anybody kind of thinks that sounds familiar, it's because he played at Appalachian State in the uh, late 90s, I think graduated 2000. Him and Ryan Lawson uh, probably led the country in dust-ups and technical fouls between the two. So they were the same type player, gritty, gutty. If you needed to send a guy in to take a guy out who's going down the lane too much like you could back in the 80s, that was sort of the two guys you sent in to do it. But he's done a great job of uh, leading Murray State, and this is a tough opener, I think, uh, for ETSU. Uh, Last year, Murray State, like a lot of teams, they were 500s, 13-13, a little bit of an odd year for them. Couldn't quite 
get things going, but they are going to be a team that I think will come in very well coached, will try to dominate sort of the pace of play, and we'll see if ETSU will be able to get the game going up and down. Can we just talk about how they've been pretty well coached for like 40-plus years? And I didn't realize how yes. far back their success went. 26 championships in 40 seasons in the OVC. Well, as long as, listen, as long as we get to mention Popeye Jones at some point in time, he's my favorite Murray State player of all time. So from 1979-80 on, 26 championships. Mark Godfrey went on to Alabama and North Carolina State head jobs after he was at Murray State. Sylvester Anderson's kind of the one that doesn't stand out in terms of resume, but he went to Jackson State after he was at Murray State as a head coach. Mick Cronin, know that name, obviously, Cincinnati and now UCLA. Billy Kennedy, Texas A&M. Steve Prom, Iowa State. These are just stops along the way for these people, whether they're there or not now. But uh, big, big names. And it's because there is so much success to be had. And every coach, it seems like, that has come and has done just an amazing job with this program. And now it's McMahon. He's won four titles in six years. They're coming off a bit of a down season that stemmed from a couple of their top scorers being gone from the 2019-20 team, and another Daquan Smith just kind of taking some steps back. But the leading scorers that they did have back last year from the 2019-20 conference title team are still with them this year. And, of course, you know, Jay, we always have to talk about when we're discussing the 2020-21 season that there's always going to be an asterisk by it just because of the weird year that it was. Uh, but Tevin Brown and K.J. Williams – are both back, and they're lighting it up from deep, averaging a combined 41 points per game. And it seemed like, or it seems like, at least in the early going, that they have learned some lessons from last year um, because those struggles seem to have receded into more early success. Well, you know, they've, they're averaging 88 points a game. Now, they've, you know, other than I think it was Southern Illinois, they played a couple lower divisions, so they've been able to really rack up some numbers. But – they always seem to have just – I used to laugh and say, you know, no matter what, ETSU's top three, uh, most athletic in their league every year, no matter what. Well, Murray State is probably uh, not top three, but top two uh, in the OBC every year, it seems like. And so they get talent, man. They get – you know, it's a nice little arena. It's, it's just across the border um, in Kentucky near uh, – Fort Campbell, where the military base is. I mean, it's just uh, it's, it's a nice little place, and they love basketball. It's in the state of Kentucky, right? So everyone lives, eats, breathes that, and they've been able to convince um, solid kids. They've got, you know, not just John Maramich, Popeye Jones. He played in the NBA uh, mainly with the Dallas Mavericks as a post player many years. So they've been able to get a lot of talent to be able to go there and to always seem to have coaches that win and then move on and do fairly success, successful things elsewhere. The outside shooting for ETSU has been a struggle. Murray State has not been struggling from there, so it will be interesting to see if ETSU can get the three-point shooting going and are they going to be able to disrupt Murray State. And then on the glass, if ETSU can do what they did last game, and I realize Upstate is not to the level of Murray State, but if ETSU gives that effort on the glass, then I think uh, ETSU's got a good shot today. Um, I'll be curious with the Bucks, just nine or ten, um, you know, guys uh, that are dressed out. I know Cordell Charles didn't play last time, but there's nine in a three-day event like this. Like, you get ready. That's how Southern Conference Tournament's going to be. But I'll be curious to see 
how the rotation, how minutes are watched, if Charles is back, does that give you 10? How does foul trouble play in over the next couple games too um, with that? Because, you know, on day three, generally you get a little more tired, get a little more fouls. So there's a lot of underlying things I want to pay attention to, but I think slowing down this offense of Murray State will be uh, the first priority. Trying to stop threes will be second priority. Rebounding, third priority. Justice Hill seems like he's ready to step into that third scorer slot for them. Role player last year, inefficient, but off to a nice start this season. Double digits every game, averaging 13 per contest, shooting 50% from the floor. Kind of an old-school guard. I'm excited to see Trey Hannibal, uh, the other that could cause trouble for the Bucs. 6'2", 220, tough, physical, maybe not big in terms of stature, but strong. You know, old-school guard, lives offensively from 18 feet and in, doesn't shoot the three, but just a bulldog. Uh, he's their other double-digit scorer, and to me, this game it reminds me a bit of the Austin P game last year because I'm wondering who is going to stop one player on their team. And you remember Austin P was Terry Taylor, who was just more athletic than everyone else. And as it turned out, it came down to the final seconds where Taylor had a put back and won the game. K.J. Williams is 6'10", 245. And if you look at the CTSU roster right now, to me, the big hole is in the middle, right? Sal's Dedeke has got some size, 6'8", 245, but... Um, he's had and had a good game against USC Upstate, but has had some struggles in the early going. Um, he's been crucial for this team in his years here defensively, and it's going to be vital throughout this season, uh, this weekend included, or this early week included, uh, for him to stay out of foul trouble, right? Now, if Charlie Weber can come in and give the kind of minutes that he did against USC Upstate, I mean, that was his, and we haven't talked since then on air at least, that was his best game as a collegiate. Uh, came to me completely out of nowhere to see we know he's athletic, right? We know he's able. We know that he is loaded with potential. And that's been the frustrating thing when he's been here is that he has not realized even a, you know, a quarter of it, right? Like even a drop of the potential that he's got. But that game, you hope, is a coming out party for him because he was on the boards and just did some things that I think hustle-wise and um, being in the right position and just working um, that I'm not sure that they see every day from him. But regardless of if you have your best a decade and best Weber or not, I think that that is an area that a lot of teams are going to target. And at 6'10", 245, like that is a low to stop in K.J. Williams on top of the fact that he can step outside and shoot the three. Um, you talk about bodies for ETSU, and I want to just touch on this redshirt release that Coach Oliver put out. So Alan Struthers, Brandon Hall, Matt Nunez, and Isaac Farah going to redshirt. That leaves 11 available players. Now Cameron George is a walk-on, right? So he's your 11th, and it seems like ideally they're not going to use 11. It'll just be 10, as Coach Oliver has talked about time and time again. But if you're without a Cordell Charles and bodies get short, you know, are we going to see some Cameron George? And it seems a little like it limits what you can do, especially in these three-game and three-day situations like we're seeing here, like we're going to see in March. And I understand the thought process behind what Oliver is doing here, but that really does put the onus on the rest of these guys to not only be at their best every single day, uh, but also to be healthy and just be able to be out there and be well-conditioned and not wear down. And um, that's difficult in situations like this. Yeah, that's the curious part. And it's not like we haven't seen teams go with like a 10-man rotation or Murray Barton was in like a staunch eight-man. And so you had a lot of guys on scholarship, you know, that never got in no matter what, even in foul trouble or not. So I'm, I am kind of curious 
um, especially a three-day type of event. It's one thing, you know, you get one game and it's a Wednesday and then you just, you know, you sell all out because you got time to recover until you play Saturday. But three games, three days, I will be real curious. Plus, you know, you get officials from all over the country to come do these, so you're not sure exactly how games are going to be called. You know, it's going to be in a gym. It's a high school gym that doesn't, didn't even have a three-point line down as of yesterday, Mike. They were working <laughs> on that today, so I cannot wait for this. Um, I, there's a lot of these tournaments that, that lend itself to you just don't know how these things are going to go. I was talking to Patrice Days about it last night, and I said, man, I said, here's what usually happens. I says the first game is whoever adjusts to the weird environment, the weird gym, the officiating, all that generally wins. And I said, then – Day two and three, generally the stronger teams win because they're used to it by then. And I said the good news for ETSU over the last several years is they've always been, you know, one of the stronger teams. And so, you know, they may have lost that first one, but they would make a comeback or they would win first and win a couple more after that. So I don't know what to expect um, from this tournament. All these are unique. Last year it was different because it was COVID and everybody, you know, the 50 fans that did make it were tested staunchly. I don't know how many people and which schools. I know Missouri State generally travels well, which could be a second round opponent for ETSU, but I don't know how many people from Long Beach is coming coming in from this. So, that, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's going to have a, you know, <laughs> one of those bad multi-tier situations of not a lot of fans in a high school gym with a with a fake three-point line down. So I, the atmosphere is going to play into this, I think, especially in game one. Um, but I am curious about the bench. How is it going to work out? Do you get the Charlie Weber and just that attacking rebounding that we saw at the, the end of USC Upstate where ETSU, I think, was down 3 nothing, and then 6-4 on the offensive glass, and then they got ten consecutive offensive rebounds to end the half. Five on one possession. Yes, there were several different things that, that um, ETSU did that made you happy. Now, it also means ETSU is missing a lot of shots, and the shots have just not come around. But I think for this first game, I think, you know, BTSU can kind of hang in there defensively and rebounding, and then hopefully the shots at some point in time will, ju- will just start falling for them. I've got a little bit on every team if we want to just go through the field yep. uh, so people are ready for anything that may happen. because. As of now, we don't know what will happen on Wednesday. We don't know if the Bucks will win or lose. We don't know which way in the bracket they're going to go. But as you said, uh, if they win, they're facing either Missouri State or Long Beach State. Long Beach, led by former University of Minnesota head coach Dan Munson. So there's a connection there. I grew up watching his teams at the U of M, many of which were um, predictably average. Uh, but they won three straight conference titles in the early 2010s, did Long Beach. He's been there 14 seasons now ever since he left uh, Minnesota. Um, haven't had a winning season, though, since 2015-16. Have been to OT twice in three games this year. Split those, lost to UCLA by 21. They're giving up 91 per game, and that's not all from the UCLA game. They did give up 100 that day, but that doesn't skew that number that far up from the other results that they've had. That could be a good chance for ETSU's offense to get on track, but Long Beach State is also shooting 54% from the floor, so a challenge on the defensive end. Now for Missouri State, Really about a 500 program the latter half of last decade, but then last year in the spring, I guess I just call it the spring for all sports, but 2020-2021, and 17-7, had a good year in the Missouri Valley. They're 2-1 this year. Their top five are back from that team, so it's a cohesive unit that had success, know what success looks like, and have pretty defined roles. Um, elsewhere, 
uh, we'll talk about you know Kent State, Wright State, George Washington, and James Madison. But in terms of those two, it seems to me that the team ETSU would prefer to face would be Long Beach. Well, Long Beach is interesting. Now you mentioned uh, Munson. I think the big thing that people may not have remembered that he started getting Gonzaga rolling, and then he left Gonzaga to go to Minnesota, and his assistant Mark Few <laughs> stayed at Gonzaga. Think you so, that decision? Uh, I would assume at some point he does. But <laughs> if you look at it and when Gonzaga, because they almost made a Final Four uh, back, I think it was 98-99, and I could be off a year, but they almost made, Gonzaga almost made a Final Four. That's what Munson got him, the Big Ten job. And then again, everything fell sort of the other way. But here's what's interesting about Long Beach State. Elite Eight. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, they got – yeah, I can't remember who they played, but they got beat in that. Uh, obviously, they didn't make the Final Four. But, I mean, they were a snippet back then before Gonzaga was really Gonzaga. That was like putting them uh, on the map. But, Mike, I'd like to bring this up. They're leading UConn, by the way, 67 to 62, the number one seed. Yeah, which was pretty good back yeah. then. So, Joel Murray is the leading scorer for Long Beach State. Six foot, averaging 25 points a game. Ooh. He has taken three threes. So, they attack the rim. They are a throwback. They will go to shots, the rim. Right? They go to the rim. They take the most two points of any team in the country. And shocker, they're like second or third last in three-pointers attempted, and they're up there in free throws attempted. So, it is just relentless drive to the hoop, drive to the hoop, drive to the hoop. So, we'll see. And going back to foul trouble, how that works out for ETSU, Missouri State, ETSU um, has been in tournaments with Missouri State but never faced off with them. Just the win-losses didn't work out. But South Padre Island was one where Missouri State ended up getting to the championship game and playing Wisconsin. Uh, I think ETSU ended up at Delaware State or something crazy uh, in the last game. So, um, But Missouri State, Dana Ford, I think a lot of people probably remember that name or heard of that name. And so he's been very successful over his tenure. Um, and I think Long Beach State would be a very different sort of style change if ETSU were to match up with them. And then obviously you've got a better shot of playing one of those teams. And then the other side of the bracket, there's four teams. And I've probably got a, a little bit of note on each like you do um, just because it's so hard to figure out right now what are the odds of who plays who. About six degrees of separation connection from ETSU and Dan Munson. Uh, after graduation, Munson was a high school coach in Oregon City, Oregon for a season, became a collegiate graduate assistant for, at UAB, Gene Bartel. So, very distant, six degrees of separation type thing, uh, but God help Dan Munson, I would be kicking myself every day, leaving Gonzaga, seeing what they are now, to go to a horrific and putrid program like the University of Minnesota, as much as I love them. Uh, and there's some uh, frustration, as you can tell, in that love. For the U of M. Uh, Kent State, we know basically nothing about them in terms of this year's product because they played Xavier and lost. Obviously, you know, top quality program every year. Then played a non-D1 and beat them up pretty good. And what we do know is they had a stretch from the late 90s to the mid-2010s that they had 14, 21 seasons and 15. They faded a bit the last seven or eight years, but still no losing seasons since 1997-98. They did lose their two leading scorers from last year, Danny Pippen and Michael, Michael Nuga. Uh, so this will be an interesting week for them as they try and figure out not only this level of competition, but as they try and figure out who's going to do what on this team. Again, <laughs> just a lot of unknowns. And um, the one thing about this tournament is the, the stylistic difference in um, 
And this is why I think these sometimes give you great matchups, and these sometimes give you some horrific, like, you know, twist your eyeball out of your head, uh, awful matchups. And I'm not real sure what to expect from them because traditionally, I mean, it's like we talk about Murray State, right? Tradition, they've, they've won, not that there's a championship, but they've won, like, meaningful games in NCAA tournaments. So the tradition is there. They don't seem to be down ever, no matter who they get in there. And so the style is the only thing I can come up with, again, without doing deep dives in any of these uh, other listing of the other three teams we're about to chat about. Um, but I think the style that they play is interesting, and we'll have to wait and see sort of for three straight days if they can maintain that. Well, and it is cool to see. I mean, there's eight different conferences represented, SoCon, Big West, Horizon, OVC, MAC, CAA, A-10, and Missouri Valley. And so it's not only the different styles, but the different backgrounds that these schools come from and just the journeys that they're going to go on. That's why I like these uh, pre-conference tournaments. Um, obviously, it does come with some of the odd and bad, like, no three-point line, uh, unless we're playing in, like, the <laughs> 70s. I mean, that, that is going to be a strange – I hope they can get that down before the game. Although, it, not to take a shot, but the way ETS is shooting it, maybe it would be better if they don't put it down because some of these teams are very hot shooting. Um, one of them is not Wright State. Averaging 22 wins per season in six years under Scott Nagy. Been to an NCAA tournament, a couple of NITs. No D1 wins so far. Losses to Marshall and number six Purdue this year. A win over 91 Lake Erie. Grandpa Seal dropped 37 against Purdue, 6'9 forward, so he'll be one to watch. Tanner Holden, the other to watch for for them, averaging 20 a night. But they have shot it just pathetically at this point in the season. 28% from deep, 39% from the floor overall. Again, you look at Purdue, a top-10 team in the country at the time they played them, being one of those opponents, that's going to skew those stats, and it's so difficult to look at stats early on. Uh, but they'll be trying to find their way offensively in this tournament. Well, Holden's been good for his career. Uh, preseason second team. I think it was a second teamer last year. Off to a hot start. And they just try to get him the ball inside. He's shooting uh, right at 50%, 17-35. And he's great at the free throw line. He's already taken 31 free throws. He's 25-31. of 31. Offense runs through Holden. And obviously if ETSU's big man can't control him, then that's just going to open up everything else. And uh, Scott Nagy's done a nice job at Wright State. That's another team that has uh, – been to some tournaments and has made some noise on a national level that you should somewhat uh, should be shocked when you hear Wright State. You should at least, if you have been a college basketball fan, uh, at least can remember the fact that they've been to tournaments and again have won one. George Washington, a lot like Wright State in terms of a history of success. The Colonials, though, probably more distant history than Wright State in terms of that. Last tournament was 2014 when they got an at-large out of the A-10. They're projected 13th in the 14-team league this year, but like Wright State, in the current day, just not scoring it. Haven't cracked 65 more than one time this year. That is their only win of the year against St. Francis. They've been hurting early on. Already played five games. They'll have played eight times in the first 16 days of the season by the time this one's said and done. And outside of Ricky Lindo Jr.'s 8 of 13 from deep, the rest of the team is 20 of 85 from outside the arc. And they are getting pounded on the glass, a minus 7 this year. They played just 17 games last year, missed a lot of A-10 play because of covid Last year's leading scorer, James Bishop, has stumbled out of the gates. How much will he be pressing after averaging 19 per game last year, shooting just 28% this year? I do wonder if not being able to put together even a semblance of a full season in 2020-21, if that isn't hurting them early enough. I, I mean, I think it, it has to. Um, 
And I think statistically speaking and looking where everyone was picked in their league, this would be um, the eighth team of the tournament if you're just going off where you're picked in the league, games played, return, scoring, looking at what's happened here. But that being said, you get here, you never know if those guys can figure some stuff out. But, boy, they have struggled to score. Just 63 points a game so far uh, this season. No consistency, especially uh, from beyond the arc, shooting 26% from there. So this is a team that's going to either find their scoring range and try to make some noise in this tournament, or this could be a very long three days for George Washington. You talk about them probably being number eight of eight. I'm not going to lie, I thought James Madison on paper was going to be my pick for not winning a game in the tournament. Historically terrible, no full winning season since 2015. Two NCAA tournament appearances the last 35 years, but the last 12 months have been really good for them. Conference regular season champions after going eight and two in the CAA in the shortened pandemic season. First round exit from the league tournament that obviously kind of crushed any momentum they could have brought into this year or so we thought they turn right back around and win their first four three of those d1 wins those three coming by nine combined points winning the close ones the only undefeated team coming into the weekend outside of murray state uh six of their top eight scorers are back a couple of them haven't quite hit their stride yet but they're a dangerous team especially considering they're doing it on the defensive end as well gave up 70 per game last year just 58 per game this year in the early going well, I think Buck fans should at least know their head coach and Mark Byington. He was a longtime assistant at College of Charleston, was the interim coach there when the Bucks were um, still in the uh, Southern Conference right before they left for the Atlantic Sun. And then ETSU's played Coach Byington when he was at Georgia Southern. And so he turned around Georgia Southern and, and actually got them to win uh, in basketball, which is not, not a small feat. Like that, that is a hard thing to do. That's traditionally it's football only. And baseball at Georgia Southern. Not a lot of basketball talk, but he was able to do that. Buck played entertaining game with them uh, in Freedom Hall. Returned a trip down uh, with Steve Forbes uh, down at Georgia Southern. You know, I guess a couple years ago now. Uh, but Coach Byington should be familiar uh, with him and everything and everywhere he has been, rather than assistant or head coach. They have always seemed to win, and so I would assume James Madison would would be a tough out here in this tournament. And this is the tournament I like to dub of six states or two presidents, because I think that's right. right. All there, there are six teams with state in the name, and then there's two presidents in this tournament. Which George is, Washington, uh, James Madison, state, 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 state. Wow, well done. Yeah. You have had some time, haven't you? Yes, I have. <laughs> I have. <laughs> that plane ride was uh, not very long in distance, but it, it seems like you've really gotten into some deep dives. Yeah, that's, that's the type of hard-hitting breakdown yes. of stuff that you don't get anywhere else here. Uh, you know, the greatest thing about this show, I mean, obviously outside of the Bucks championship is that we don't have to do bold predictions because we made none last week that are currently oh, in transit. play. That's right. Uh, we did long-term for the basketball season, so <laughs> it's but a great Monday to be Mike Gallagher. It, it is, but it's also a great Monday to be me because uh, the long-term football one uh, came back into play. I've got a, it is back into play. i got uh, a long-term Completion percentage. Yeah, well, when a guy throws for – Damn near 90% in a championship game. Um, you'll have to wait to get it officially, but that did put you from, I think, 60% to, like, are they at 63 or something like that? Now they're, you're right on top of that number. Game. Right uh, where I need to be. Going. Right where you need to be. Uh, you're 12-17, and 17, by the way. I'm 4-24 and 24 in both predictions. I just wanted to throw that out there because I want to make you feel good on a Monday because you got three days ahead of you. And I'm not sure how are they're going to go. Uh, one, two, or three wins for the Bucks. What do you think? I'm going two. Okay. I think that would be success. Do you? Yes, I think two wins down here would be great. Right. When they're going to come, I don't know, but I'm going to go two and <laughs> one on this trip. Okay. I like that. 
Murray State's going to be interesting tonight, going to be tough, and then you just don't know who you're going to play. I mean, it looks to me like the Bucks on paper right now are the third or fourth best team in this tournament coming in, which means if you make progress over the three days, yeah, two wins at minimum. Well, and here's good news. No Thanksgiving show. We're going to go ahead and take a holiday off, a rare holiday, so it'll be next Monday when we'll talk to everyone. Well, Jay Sandoz, best of luck to you, and happy holidays. Bye, right. News Network.